The following production is part of the Play Some Video Games Podcast Network. And welcome to Board with Video Games, the gaming podcast that strives for the right balance of coverage for games to play on your table and on your television. You can think of us as the New England Patriots and videotaping opposing teams of gaming podcasts. We're a proud member of the PSVG Podcast Network and still to be part of the Dice Tower Network as well. I am one of your hosts, Kyle, and joining me on this co-op adventure, the guy who only videotapes for documentaries, Josh, how are you doing this evening? I, I thought about not answering you and walking out of the room. <laughs> I saw the smirk when I said it. I but saw the smirk. I'm sure you're also going to hold the Ravens accountable, uh, you know, because, you know, they, they also did it, but actually recorded for not a documentary. So I'm sure they'll be held accountable too, right? Right. Well, I'm, I'm sure they'll like be the penalized Patriots did too, before. Right? Just like the Patriots <laughs> did before. It's fine. They just learned from them. They learned how to, they watched how the Patriots uh-huh. won. And they said, this is what we need to do to win, too. It wasn't there the first time the Patriots (laughs) got caught, a team that was caught a week later and nothing happened, too? Hmm. (laughs) I wonder. It's okay, Kyle, because you don't have to worry about the Patriots anymore. It's true. And my team won, amazingly, somehow. Well, I mean, I think we know how they won. They scored more points? Well, well, yeah, but but they... Used a Belichick trick against him, and they just ran the ball down our throats the whole game. Oh, no. I was talking about the Vikings. Oh, oh, the Vikings. (laughs) Yeah, the Vikings won somehow against the Saints again. Yes. You know. That was crazy. But Hey, it's okay. No, it's okay. Because, you know, football season's almost over, which means we're getting closer and closer to summer. It's okay to start looking forward to summer already, right? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) uh, I mean, I still have... Three more months of winter, but uh, yeah, let's look forward to I'll take <laughs> well, spring. <laughs> the holidays are over, so let's just go to the next exciting thing, and that is spring. So I mm. think we should definitely be looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty exciting. How was your How was your last week, sir? Anything exciting happen? Mm, no, not really. It's just been a very stressful month of December, and... I'm looking forward to not having plans for the next four weekends that I know of. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Uh, I wish I had that, but I don't. But that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. So, All right. Well, you- <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to go ahead. We're going to get into the show. Uh, we're back to uh, the typical shows now. So we're you know going to do a little housekeeping. So mm. thanks so much for joining us this week, everyone. As always, if you have any feedback, questions, or suggested topics, hit us up at Board with VG on Twitter or check out all the awesome stuff over on the Instagram, also Board with VG. We are a proud part of Play Some Video Games, and PSVG is on Patreon. We're absolutely thrilled with the support you have given us there thus far. And if you'd like to monetarily support what we do, you can find us there at patreon.com slash PSVG. But the most important thing is just that you listen and maybe share what we do with someone else you th- who you think might enjoy it. We're also a member of the Dice Tower Podcast Network, so if you enjoy our conversations about board games and would like to dive deeper into that world, we encourage you to check out the Dice Tower Podcast as well as all the other members of the network. 
No matter what type of board games you enjoy, there's a podcast on the network that is right for you. Enough of the housekeeping. Back to regular shows. Josh, we can finally talk about all the things we've played over the last month or so. (laughs) So, Josh, what have you been playing on your tabletop, sir? Well, Kyle... You would think that I would have some games to talk about. <laughs> it's been a busy... Hey, December's a busy month for a lot of things, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of been a bummer. I've been I've been really fighting to get board games to the table, and I've had a non-enthusiastic spouse uh, about it. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, my pushing and prodding uh, has gotten me nowhere. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm curious if our listeners have experienced that as well. Uh, we did play one game. Uh, a couple weeks ago, it was called Trellis. I think I don't remember if I talked about it just to you or if I talked about it on the podcast. Uh, but uh, I, I I did pressure her into playing games one night, and she I said you can pick the games, or she walked in the room and picked the shortest game the time <laughs> game we have, <clears throat> which is Trellis. Not that it's a bad game, I believe. It's on the other end of the room now. I think it's by Breaking Games. Um. Yes, it's by Breaking Games. And uh, essentially, Trellis is a two-player board game. No, four-player four board game. Uh, two to four players, maybe one to four, who knows. Uh, it's tiling uh, and planting, essentially. Uh, you're growing vines, and you're flowering your vines as you play. Now, uh, the rules are pretty simple. On your turn, you play a tile, and you grow a vine. Uh, However, if you already have flowers on the the vine that is continuing, like is continuing to grow, think of it like Suro a little bit, uh, you will then uh, bud more flowers on your vine. And the goal of the game is the person to get rid of all of their flower, we'll call them meeples, um, first wins the game. Simple as that. Just the first person to get rid of all their flowers. Uh, however, when you do place a tile and if it connects a vine that another player is currently on, they flower as well. But you're also rewarded for having your opponent flower by getting an extra action, which means you can place another one of your flowers on an unoccupied vine. So essentially, it's a very quick, you play a tile, you play a flower, you pick up a tile, so you always have three in your hand, and you just play until the first person's out of flowers. Too bud. Uh, I actually, I liked it. It was it was very quick. It plays under 20 minutes, um, I think, at any player count. Uh, it's fast moving. There's not a lot of analysis paralysis or, or people taking long, ter- like long turns because... You have very you have only three tiles to choose from. You can't go necessarily in any direction you want. You have to follow the the curve or the hook or the straight line of the vine that you're trying to grow. Um, and uh, you're not necessarily trying to keep your opponent from flowering because you also get a bonus for doing that as well. So um, quick little easy game. We picked it up at Target a few months ago on clearance. I think we paid like nine bucks for it but i think it's normally 20 um pretty good game like i said uh if it sounds up your alley it's definitely worth the price if you can get it uh in that price point uh played more gloomhaven i think we may have talked about it briefly when we were doing uh game board game of the decade awards with william Mm -hmm. 
And I thought I could talk quickly about The Climbers, which is a game we played at PAX Unplugged. Uh, you see, like, the Barnes & Noble exclusive, like, family edition of this, uh, if you're in the store commonly. <clears throat> it is a colorful box, so it catches your attention. But essentially, Climbers is a game that... It's a dexterity game. Did I talk about this? Uh, I think you may have mentioned it, but I don't think you talked in depth about it. Okay, so when you play Climbers, uh, the rules are... It comes with, like, a whole bunch of blocks on the inside of the uh, the game. I'm not sure... If there's plastic and wooden variants, but the one I played was wooden. And the rules tell you, depending on, it doesn't matter the amount of players, everyone collectively takes all these blocks and they build them uh, to cover, I believe it's two pylons. And they, they can't be visible. And you can build you can build it around it as however you want. And then what you do when you play the game is <clears throat> each block has a color representing players in the game. So if I'm red, I can only um, climb on red blocks. And it has to be... um, So I'm standing on the red square itself. So there's actual squares. There's rectangles. um, There's cubes. There's very tall ones, short ones, and small ones. When you start the game, you start the game with uh, two short ladders and one long ladder. And once they're one-time use... So a short ladder gets you up one level uh, higher than you would be able to move normally. And the way you move normally is if your head is above that tile, you can just move up it. But if it's at your if it's at your head level, you need to either use a small ladder or a large ladder to get up that piece. Um, and then if you have a large ladder, you can also use it to go up to high, well, any higher as long as you can reach the top of the block with the ladder. And then the ladder's gone. No one else gets to use it. It just goes away after you use it. Um, but what you also do after your turn is you move or you move a block. And you can do that. You, you, you do both of those actions on your turn, but you can do them in any order. <clears throat> and, that, and that's simply picking up any block, no matter where, as long as a player isn't on it, and putting it anywhere, as long as it's not below the level where you picked it up from. So you always have to either be staying the same height or going higher. And it gets real tricky when people all start trying, like getting to the top of this so-called mountain that you're building. Uh, it's pretty fun. Uh, we had a lot of fun with the with the group of people we played with. Um, it was you know lots of laughs, and 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 we were looking around at the other tables. Uh, to see who had it. And someone came over and started counting the height of our tower while we were playing. And he goes, okay, good. You're not taller than us. And then he goes back to his <laughs> table. Uh, so it was pretty fun. Definitely a fun family game. Um, and I would recommend it. That's the Climbers. Awesome. All right. So, Josh, I finally have gotten a couple heftier games to the table that I, I have referenced before. Uh, and I've talked about in passing. But I'm going to go a little in-depth with both of these now. So. Kind of bear with me. Cool. First off, I'm going to talk about Seventh Continent, uh, which is designed by Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sater, uh, published by Sirius Pulp. Uh, this game obviously came out a couple years ago. I think 2017 was the first Kickstarter that got released. Um, I got it as part of a Kickstarter last year. And before I talk about the game itself, I want to talk about something they did with this Kickstarter, Josh, which is kind of mind-boggling. Okay. 
So Seventh Continent is a game where all about cards, and it's kind of a choose your choose your own adventure. But the deck, because if you played Seventh Continent, no, but I'm I, okay. I'm kind of familiar with the concept a little bit. Okay, so you start with a card in the middle of the table, and then from that card, you're able to kind of build out the map as you go. Well. There's multiple different starting curses because you're trying to basically uh, cure a curse is what you're trying to do in every game. And there's multiple different starting curses. I think there's seven or something like that in the base box, um, which means that because of all of these different cards that you're doing and all of this, all these different boards that you're building, there's over a thousand cards wow. in this box. Okay. Well over a thousand. Apparently... When they did their print run, and I had never paid attention to this. I, I got this other box, but I never really paid attention to it. But apparently when they did the print run, some of the cards were cut not quite the same size. Yeah. And the color on the back of a couple of them were slightly different. <laughs> so they sent an entire replacement set of cards hmm. at no cost. Nice. So I basically kind of almost have two copies of the game. Not quite. Yeah. I don't think you could quite get there. But that, to me, was just number one mind-boggling because I read about it and I looked at it because I, I got – when I first got the cards, I was like, what the heck? Why I thought – because I got them at the same time I got the expansion. So I thought that it was like, oh, here are all the cards you have to replace because the expansion changes some of these things. Yeah. So I literally thought that was what they were for. And I was like, well, I want to play the game without the expansion first. So I just set them aside and was like, I will worry about this later. But then when I went to go sit down and play, really play the game, I brought that back out and started looking at it, and it literally is an entire just new set of cards that are quote-unquote cut properly and quote-unquote have like all of matching colors now. Oh, wow. And I went in and tried to tell the difference of the colors. You can very slightly on a couple of the colors tell the difference on the backs, which does matter. But card size, I couldn't tell a difference on anything. There was nothing I could tell a difference on. So I'm just really impressed that they sent out an entire another set of cards. Yeah. Like that's kind of mind blowing considering, you know, this was like a hundred plus dollar Kickstarter. Yeah. That's you know, crazy. And they figure they're selling, sending a thousand cards to mom. Blew my mind. But anyway, neither that's here good nor customer there. service. Yeah. Amazing customer service by them. They did great, great work by them to do that. Um, so I really applaud them for that. Number one. Uh, number two. So the game itself in Seventh Continent, like I said, you are uh, a band of explorers. It is a cooperative game and you are trying to solve or fix or cure a curse that is occurs at the start of the game. The curse card tells you which card you're pulling from the thousand plus cards to start as your center card. And then you put all of your players, put their little meeple slash miniature on there and then you just start going. That's it. There's no further direction than that. There's no further, here's what you need to do to solve or cure this curse. None of that is given to you. You literally get a general, like, flavor text idea of that this curse happened, and here's kind of what the area looks like. But the flavor text is super important because what it says really kind of does encourage you as to maybe what you should do or where you should go. And you get one clue when you start for the first um curse that they encourage you to do the clues are really kind of rough map that until you start playing you have no idea what any of it means um but then on the card that your players are starting on there are basically different actions listed there's up to 30 right around 30 actions in the game and some of them are what you'd expect them to be like explore and move and things like that 
But there are other things like crafting, making fire, resting, listening, playing music. There's all of these different actions that exist, but you can only take the actions that are listed on the card that you're on. Um, So every card that you turn over or gets added to the map is going to give you different things to do. um, And you have to be on those cards to do there. So you have to take the move action. But what's interesting about this game and what what I think they do really uh, – and other games have done this, but I think this works really, really well – is that you basically have a deck that gives you you cards with abilities, and that is your life, but it's everyone's life. So everyone in the game is operating from this same deck. And every time you want to do an action, there's a cost associated with it, which is in blue – and it will be like X plus or one plus or two plus, And that's the number of cards you need to draw. And then there is a star symbol next to that. And that is how many stars you need to successfully get in those number of cards in order to successfully do the action. So obviously, the more cards you draw, the higher chance of success. But you're also taking more cards out of your quote unquote life deck. And if that deck ever runs out. You don't lose immediately, but it really quickens the pace at which you're going to lose the game then um, because there's some other mechanisms that come into play then. But it's a really inventive way to do it that no matter what action you want to take, you just draw some cards. Hmm. Maybe zero cards, maybe one card, maybe five cards. But that is what you're doing. And then what you do is once you've drawn the cards out, on the left-hand side of the card, there are stars printed. Sometimes it's a full star. Sometimes it's a half star. But then you can kind of place cards together to make two halves into a whole and all this stuff. So you're really trying to figure out what's the best way to place these cards together. Um, and then one per- you get to keep one of the cards and everything else gets discarded. And then if you successfully did the action, you draw whatever card the thing tells you to draw as a result of being a success. If you fail, you do whatever thing it tells you to do with that since it was a failure. And then it's just either your turn again or the next person's turn. There's really no turn order per se. As a group, you all decide, is somebody individually taking an action? Are you all taking the action together? Is player A going to go, then player B is going to go, then player C is going to go, and then player A again? Or maybe player A wants to go four times in a row because there's these four things they want to do. And you could do that. That's totally fine. There are different characters. So there is some asymmetrical powers in the game. Every character has a little bit of different ability of what they can do. Um, and they're characters like Dr. Frankenstein really? uh, and, and Cthulhu <laughs> and, and um, or Lovecraft and things like that. So those are kind of like who the characters are um, and their special abilities are based off of like those things. Uh, so it's a really, really interesting game, though. We played it twice, starting with the first curse. And it was funny because after we played it the first time, we had absolutely no idea if we had done a good job or not. We had no idea. <laughs> If we got anywhere near close to figuring this curse out at all. Then I read some online and my partner read a little bit online about, you know, the first one, how it goes. And basically everyone was like, just enjoy the ride. You're going to lose probably a few times before you really understand how this game works. Uh, And I think that's pretty accurate. So if you're someone who wants a clear line of like, here's what you need to do to win. Here's how you win the game. You know, oh, you win the game by having the most points and here are the ways you earn points. That does not happen with this game at all. Not even close. It literally is lift this curse. How? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> it. There, there's no explanation about how to do it, where to do it, when to do it, or what you need to do to do it. So, uh, yeah, it's a really cool game, though. It's very inventive. It is very steeped in uh, place. Like, it really does a good job of, of setting the scene. 
and the positive things that happen make sense in context when you're trying to do an action. And if you fail, it makes sense what would happen in those cases. Uh, so, yeah, they did a really nice job with it. So it is the number 17 overall ranked game on Board Game Geek, and mm-hmm. I totally get why. Um, I like this game a lot. I had a really good time with it. I think if you enjoy kind of going on an adventure, that was always my thing. I think of like The Hobbit right away. I'm going yeah. on an adventure. <laughs> uh, if you enjoy that kind of thing, you're going to love this game. But if you are someone who really is looking for a very clear path to victory, this might be something you're going to struggle with because there are times when it's like, what should we do? I have, oh, what do you think we should do? Well, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> you know like, so, yeah, it's cool. I think there is some replay value to it. The hard part is that if you fail it and you go back, the general layout of the islands and everything you go to doesn't change, but the events that can happen change, but you still know that, oh, if I go this way, then this thing is going to populate, and then I have to get to this thing, and that thing will populate. So none of that changes, which makes sense, right? Right. But the things that can kind of happen and the, and the unexpected things in between there can sometimes change as a result. But overall, Seventh Continent, highly recommend it. Uh, I think they are doing a more accessible version of it this year. Okay. Um, I think as what I've heard, uh, just that's a little easier to find because this isn't a game you can go buy in stores. Right. It's not something that's available just because for them, they said the price of printing it, since there's so many cards, it's so expensive um, that they're doing a pared down version that'll be a little more available um, just because of that. Because it's, I can imagine it would be a pretty hefty risk for them um, to go ahead and just publish a whole bunch and then send them to like local game stores. So, yeah. But yeah, Seventh Continent, definitely I recommend it. I think it's great. Uh, the other game that got played, uh, another super light game, uh, <laughs> finally got a Feast for Odin to the table, uh, designed by uh, Uwe Rosenberg. I believe the version I have is published by Z-Man, if I recall. Uh, and, you know, Uwe definitely known for his heavy Euros, <laughs> uh, and this game fits right in with the heavy Euro idea. The thing about Uwe Rosenberg games that I, I, I have always enjoyed and I, I like a lot is that learning how to play them really isn't that complicated. You know, when you look at the games that he's designed and the things that he's done, you know, when you look at like Agricola, you look at Caverna, how you actually play those games and what you do in those games isn't that complicated. But it's knowing what to do when given the options that's really, really hard. Um, But anyway, in A Feast for Odin, it takes place over 12 turns, or excuse me, over seven rounds, and in each round there are 12 sessions that happen, or or sections of each round. Um, And in it, it's really, you know, honestly, 10 of the 12 are really straightforward. It's like, hey, you take a new Viking and add it to your pool, and then after that, you harvest. Like, there's very straight, spelled out things that happen. Like, for harvest, it just happens, and you know, on this turn, you get these things, and on turn two, you get these things. It just are things are spelled out for you. What is tricky about it, though, is that eventually you get to the action selection portion. And how this game works is every player has an individual player board, and then there is an action board in the center of the table. Your individual player board, when you start, you start the game with like negative 60 points. Okay? So your goal is to acquire goods and then place these goods on your player board that cover up all of these negative points. Now, the goods are all color-coded. 
and can only be in correlation to other goods in certain ways on your player board. So greens can't have green sides touching each other, but blues, blues can touch anything. It doesn't matter. (laughs) So it's trying to figure out what, and if you have red goods or orange goods, those goods can't go on your player board. But if you buy an expansion island or an expansion longhouse, they can potentially go on those. And then there's different ways that (laughs) rules for how those can touch each other. But anyway, that's kind of what you're trying to do is fill up your player board uh, to reduce the negative, reduce the negative points and eventually get obviously into the positive. The way you do that is through taking actions. Actions cost either anywhere from one to four meeples, depending on the action you're taking and how good the action is. But the kicker is there's 61 different actions you can take. (laughs) And this is where seventh continent where there's only specific ones you can do. At a time, you can do any of right. them, right? Whenever you, you want. You can do any of those 61 actions. Now, only one person each turn can do each action. So it's yeah. not like everyone can do, you know, whaling. Um, but that's where the, the nuance and understanding the game well really comes in. Because figuring out, okay, of these 61 actions, you know, what ones am I going to do? And what order am I going to do them in? And what is the opponent possibly going to do? Because if they go whaling before I do then I can't go whaling this turn and whaling is really good. Or if they're going to do X and I really need to do X, is it worth me doing it now? Um, you know, right away, even though I really would prefer to upgrade two of my items first before I, I did this other action. So it really then becomes, there's no direct player interaction. Like I can't give you things. You can't give me things, but I can definitely block your ability to do things that are really important for you to do by paying attention to what's going on around the table. And I will say the first time I played this game, I had it took me about halfway through the game to really understand how to play the game, what's good, what's not good, what order you should potentially think about taking actions in. Um because I was really struggling with covering up my player board. I couldn't figure out how to get enough goods in order to upgrade them because most of the goods that you get aren't of high enough quality for you to put on your player board right away. You have to figure out how to upgrade them. So I was really struggling. I did really, really bad the first game. Uh, I only scored like positive 40 some points. Uh, and they say a good score is like a hundred. I was like, I don't even know how in the world you get to a hundred. <laughs> yeah. And there's, and part of the actions are there's these expansion islands you can get that add more negative points. <laughs> it's more negative points right away that you have to cover up. And I was like, why would anybody get these? And then I was reading online and people are like, oh, no, you totally get those. Those are the only way you can win the game. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I can't even get enough stuff to, like, fill up my regular player board. (laughs) Uh, But second game came together for me a little bit better. And in game two, I scored 99 points. So, yeah, really, I doubled my score, basically. I went up by 50. I think I went from 49 to 99, if I recall. Um, So I actually beat my partner, which never happens in these types of games in game two. but yeah, it it it's one of those games that on the surface it seems so simple because your player board walks you through almost everything. Like how the player boards are lined out. It's like, hey, take a new Viking. So you there's a specific spot on your player board that you take the Viking from, add it to your roster of Vikings that you can use. Then it's harvest. Okay, on the player board it says in you know round two, take harvest items one and two. Perfect. Take all the harvest items one and two. It's like, you know, draw a new weapon card. Okay, done. Like, really straightforward stuff that you have to do. But then when you get to that action section is when it really starts to 
you you realize that there's a lot of depth to this game and that the heavy weight that it is given on board game geek i think the weight is uh 3.85 uh is definitely earned and worth it and that there is not one direct path to victory there are multiple things that you can do uh and really kind of understanding that and trying to place together okay if i get this item and i upgrade it two times it'll fit this way on my board um, but yeah, it's an amazing game. It's really, really excellent. Like I said, played over seven rounds. Um, there are 12 phases per round. Um, uh, but really that, those action steps, you know, when you start the game, I think you have six meeples by the end of the game, you have 13 or 14 meeples that you're using and really trying to figure out, you know, do I take a lot of one meeple actions because you just keep going, right? If a person runs out of meeples and you still have meeples left, you just keep taking more actions until you're out. Nice. Um, and that's actually how they determine the starting players. The last person to put a meeple, um, is the person who's this first player the next round. Oh. So, yeah, so there is some advantage to using smaller numbers of meeples for actions because it'll allow you to go first in the future um, so that you can take those higher value actions right away and not have to worry about other people doing them. So uh, if you're looking for a heavy euro, if you're looking for a game that's really going to burn your brain, uh, I can't recommend A Feast for Odin enough. I think it is a really, really excellent game. Uh, I think overall it's ranked number like 23 uh, board game geeks top 100 and i think it's definitely worth it i will say though uh you have to have a very patient teacher um the iconography on the boards i think is really good but you have to learn what that iconography means um so i think this will be a very hard game to have no one know how to play it when you all start playing it which is how i learned it and that first game took a painfully long time yeah, but once you get the game down and understand it, and if you can have someone teach you who knows how to play, uh, I think it actually teaches pretty quickly. Then, then it's just up to you to how fast can your brain operate and how fast is your analysis paralysis going to set in um, when you're trying to figure out which of those sixty-one actions you're going to take yeah. um, on your turn. But a feast for Odin, I absolutely adore it. I can't recommend it enough, um, and I think it's a great, great euro uh, if somebody's looking for a heavy one. So there we go. Enough about board games. Josh, what have you been playing on your television, sir? Oh, well, let's say old reliable Apex Legends I'm still playing. <clears throat> Enjoying the winter event uh, uh, for the most part. Uh, it's what does the, for the most part mean? It, it's it's, it's kind of like the Halloween event. Uh, after you do it a few times, it's a, it's a little samey. And I think, it, I think that more or less shows off... Um, how much I enjoy regular Apex Legends because even though it is same every time you play it, it doesn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the winter event, it's uh, like the holiday train and you're just essentially just three teams of three just trying to take over this train and you just keep doing it until someone gets three wins, if someone gets three wins. So it's just kind of the same thing. And if you don't have good teammates, it can be frustrating. Um, but I've won more than I've lost, which is good. Which isn't which that is good. Uh, I don't like. I said it's been so long since we recorded a regular episode. I don't know what we've talked about. So if I am repeating myself, please forgive me for this week only, and then you can crucify <laughs> me in two weeks. Um, uh, I picked up Sekiro for Kyle and I after we kind of figured we should probably at least play it since it won Game of the Year. Um, Indeed. I haven't played too much of it. I, I played pretty much the opening mission um, and, and then some. But for me, uh, like I said, I haven't played any of the Souls games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, Star Wars was my first 
journey into the parry system as like as a game that really capitalizes it on, on the whole. So I definitely see that in this. Uh, to me, this really feels like a Tenchu uh, meets like Bushido Blade for anyone who's played mm-hmm. those games who's as old as me. Um, so I'm enjoying it so far. Uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Um, but so far I'm enjoying it. Uh, I look forward to playing it some more. Um, I started playing Blasphemous, which was part of Humble Choice last month, Humble Bundle on the PC. Um, it's pretty crazy. Okay. (laughs) It's basically, uh, I don't really want to spoil anything for anyone who's curious about the game, but it's basically, maybe Lucas will back me up on this because I know, I don't know if he's played it yet, but I know he has it. Um, have you played this, Kyle? I have not. Okay. It's basically uh, Dante's Inferno and Castlevania had a baby. And then that baby grew to 40 feet tall and tried to kill you. That's what Blasphemous is. <laughs> uh, it's very monstery. It's very dark. It's very, uh, yeah, fire and brimstone-y. Uh, very biblical in its um, inspirations which is where you see most of the Dante's Inferno like um, reference stuff. But so far, very cool looking game. Um, I'm just trying to find, I'm just trying to decide if it's over the top to just to be over the top or if it's over the top to serve a purpose. And I haven't gotten mm-hmm. far enough to decide uh, for myself what that is. Um, is oh, go ahead. Sorry. Is it, is this the side scrolling? Yeah. Action platformy game uh, i wouldn't call it platform yet maybe it gets okay. platform me that's the castlevania aspect of it it's more Cas- okay. it's more castlevania than anything okay uh the, yeah the only comparison i give to, to daddy's inferno is the um the uh, graphic design because it was a kickstarter wasn't it i believe it was i think it was a kickstarter okay yeah i'm just trying to make sure i'm thinking of the the yeah, guy with the giant same game yeah, 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 yeah. okay yep dunce yep, cap yep, okay. if you will <laughs> yeah well oh that is a spoiler i wanted to say something he does but it's a spoiler and it would it would ruin a funny part well funny <laughs> not intentionally okay. uh <laughs> and then uh finally i really feel like there's been more i've been messing around with stadia a bit nothing to report that is noteworthy um yeah which is a bummer um but yeah, so to yesterday, yesterday, I started my first playthrough of New Game Plus of Horizon Zero Dawn, um, which is something Kyle and I talked about last week after we recorded, and I think I mentioned it when we recorded with Donnie that I wanted to revisit it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's my first. Uh, my my wife was like, didn't, didn't you play this already? As she's watching me play it. And I'm like, <laughs> at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I couldn't sleep. And I was like, when I played Horizon Zero Dawn the first time, it was on a base PS4 and a you know regular 1080 PTV. And, and now mm-hmm. I have a PS4 Pro and a 4K TV and a new 4K TV, newer than my old one, which is redundant uh, <laughs> uh i have upgraded since i should say uh in 4k so uh it, it really i don't want to say it feels like a new game it certainly doesn't because i'm very familiar with how to play this game however 
it looks like it, it could have just come out last week graphically, mm-hmm. um, which shows how well it has held up because obviously uh, the graphics haven't changed since unless they patched it for 4K, but I'm pretty sure it was 4K support when it came out. Yeah. So, the, you know, it hasn't really changed graphically since it came out, but for me, it's, it's you know, a big, a big difference. D- definitely notable. Um and it, it handles for uh, HDR nicely, which I, I can say that not a lot, not every game on, uh, and I'm not just singling out the PS4, but for this circumstance, I am. I've had more issues with HDR on my PS4 than on my Xbox, mm-hmm. um, so I was a little worried about that when I was doing the HDR setup. Um, but it actually looks fantastic. Um, uh, so yeah. I'm just enjoying my time. I put in a few hours on Saturday. Uh, I just plan on uh, keep on playing. Uh, and I have a bunch of new stuff. I can level up 10 more levels, which is awesome. Yep. And uh, there's more, uh, a couple more skills, I think, that were included with the uh, Frozen Wilds DLC. Yep. So there's definitely, there's already more stuff for me to do, which is exciting because I was a little worried uh, that I was going to be a little bored. Mm-hmm. But even from Go, I was enjoying uh, killing robot dinosaurs right away. <laughs> it was it felt so good, and I was I was remembering like how much fun it is to target different parts of the animals and to use different ammo and set up mm-hmm. traps and how easy it is to do traps because I forgot when they're talking about using the tripcaster. I'm like, oh man, do I have to go? And set up. I, f- I had forgotten. Like, do I have to go set a line and then walk over and place it? And I'm like, oh no, I just shoot it. Yeah, <laughs> like perfect. <laughs> so it's been a bit, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to um, to relive that. And uh, I have one of those memories that pe- that I'm not sure how many people have this, but like I can watch a TV show forever because I just I don't necessarily retain every element. And I and like if I watch an episode of Futurama today, that I could probably tell you like recite lines while watching it. There's still things I don't remember. That so I'm always viewing things like that right. with fresh eyes. So I really mm-hmm. feel like um, with Horizon, there's already been a lot of stuff. Just revisiting um, the um, conversation trees with the characters that I had forgotten about, um, right. or that maybe I didn't. Uh, fully listen the first time I played. So, uh, so far, so great. And those are my four games. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I'll still stay on the Horizon train then because I also have hmm. started my playthrough of New Game Plus for Horizon Zero Dawn. Uh, and I will say it is a little interesting how they have you go into the New Game Plus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you do true. have to go into your current save. That and was then a pain s- in the butt. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you had to go into your current save and then do like a I want to save this as my new game plus character. Yeah. And then exit your current game and then start new game plus, which was a little odd. You would just think they would just pick up, but whatever, that's cool. I'm not a programmer. I don't know how this works. Uh but what is a little weird about it, and I think I, I'm gonna be interested to see how this goes for the rest of the game because I don't remember like you, I have a really bad memory when it comes to these sorts of things. Like, no matter how many times I've played, like, the Uncharted trilogy, like, I will forget characters' names. Or, yeah. you know, you know, or I guess there's four games, five games, six games, kind of. <laughs> anyway, but anyway, 
I, I really struggle with that, where it's like Donnie can just like rattle off all these characters' names, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, I think that happened after this one thing, but I really don't remember that well. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with my affinity for it. I just have a poor memory. Um, anyway, when the game starts, like the first mission that you have to go do is like, oh, you know, go talk to so-and-so, get this thing, yada, yada, yada. And then as soon as you're done talking to the character who gives you that, it's like, done! Because you have all the things already, right? Yeah. You have the trip gas, you yeah. have all the stuff. And then it's like, well, oh, okay. Because <laughs> I, I went and did all of those things. Yeah. So then I was like, well, can I still go talk to that character even who I had to get the thing from? Where are they? Because now the point tells me to go to the end. Yeah. But where were they, you know? So... I wonder how much of that stuff is going to happen. And I didn't know, you know, going in, if they would take some things away from you or kind of how it would work. And clearly they're just letting you keep absolutely everything. Yeah. And I have like 17,000 pieces of scrap metal. <laughs> so <laughs> no big deal. Can make just arrows for all. days. I can make <laughs> arrows for days. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I fell right back into it. I was a little worried that I wouldn't remember how the combat and all that stuff worked. Uh, and it took no time really to kind of fall back into it. I'm only about played for about an hour so far, but uh, yeah, really simple to get back into. Felt kind of like putting on a comfortable pair of shoes, <laughs> um, but I'm really excited to play through it, especially with January, I think, being a little slower for new releases that I want to jump into. I'm really looking forward to getting this new game plus done um, and playing Frozen Wilds for the first time because I haven't yeah. played it ever. So I'm uh, very excited about that. Also want to talk a little bit. I did play some more Call of Duty. I actually had an entire day over break here. Uh, where a friend of mine and I, all we did all day long was play Call of Duty, literally from like 10 in the morning uh, until like 2 in the morning. Oh, so it was it was a long day of Call of Duty. <laughs> um, let me just say, the battle pass for Call of Duty, it is a grind. Like, it's cool that they went this route rather than doing DLC and splitting up the player base and they're just giving maps and all of this stuff. Like, that's great. But this battle pass, my lord, is it a grind. And they don't tell you how much experience you need between for each level. And you don't really know exactly how the experience you're getting is counting towards going up. Like, is it my overall experience? Is it like my weapon experience? Do those both count? When I complete a challenge, does that count differently than my other experience? How much experience is there between levels? Is it how much time I was in a game? Does that matter at all? They don't tell you any of this. There's no, like, you. I, your bar goes up some. And you're <laughs> like, okay, great. I guess I'm closer. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, so it is absolutely a grind to get this done. I definitely don't think I'm going to finish the 100 levels. I'm on like 50 right now and I have played overall and obviously I played a lot before the first season. I think right now I'm in the 50 hour ballpark of online play from what some people, uh, on the call of duty Reddit have said is they figure it's going to be for the average player of almost 200 hours of multiplayer to finish the battle pass. And I get that you have some people who will finish that in the first month, but I can't imagine that's most people, right? Like, I don't know. It just I, seems uh, a little unreasonable to me. I'm out of touch with the Call of Duty player. Um, I can tell you that just from talking to the guys I work with who are Call of Duty players and have just played this game 10 times as much as you have. And even yeah, what sure. you've played is monumental compared to whatever I would even be able to get to in call of duty yeah it i don't know it i there that was a lot of nonsense i just said there i think the <laughs> thing that i still find fascinating about call of duty is that there is still no skill-based matchmaking and i don't understand that 
for, you know, and we're recording this January 5th. In like three weeks, they're kicking off the like Activision's new Call of Duty League that's city based, right? The inaugural weekend's happening in Minneapolis, you know, not too yeah. far from me. Yeah. Um, all the teams are going to be there. They're all going to be playing competitive Call of Duty. There's no ranked matchmaking in Call of Duty still. So I'm playing games of Call of Duty where we're i i'm sometimes winning 75 to 25 and sometimes losing 75 to 25 (laughs) because you know you're in the game and then your team gets down early so everyone quits so now it's you know six v two so you're like well this is great this is gonna go swell yeah uh and the servers are still not that great like there are times where i will on my screen i shoot people and get hit markers and then when i watch the kill cam i never hit them because i die i'm like how did i die and then they show the kill cam and the player never got hit by me you know like these things still and i don't understand how a game that is ostensibly the biggest console game i mean i people always talk about being the biggest franchise which i guess in a lot of ways it is but like league of legends and all that other stuff obviously have more concurrent players but I don't understand how a game that is this successful, that has a competitive league behind it, that has people who play it as seriously as they do, still has issues like this that have always existed. Like, these are not things that have gone away that, like, the server stuff was better before and it's gotten worse again. But, like, I don't understand how this is still a thing with them. So, anyway, that's my rant about Call of Duty. Am I still going to play it? Of course I am because I'm stupid. Um, but, yeah, so <laughs> a little frustrated there. To t- get away from the frustration, though, uh, the partner and I started playing Lego Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, we were looking for a-, a game for us to play together, and I had <laughs> gotten this a long time ago, and I just never played it. So I downloaded it and started playing it. And, you know, I really like the Lego games. Other than, man, are they janky sometimes. There are so many bugs in those yeah, games. There is because there's so much going on. It's insane. Like, Yeah, I mean, because they have to account for so many different things, but... Uh, twice I have had errors that have caused the game to crash completely. Um, and both times then, like, it loaded back up, which was fine, and loaded back into where the save was, which was fine. But then I would finish the story, and not that this is a huge deal, but then I didn't get the trophy for finishing the level. Well, so that, I know that so the, then I ha- <laughs> people can argue it's not a big deal, but I know to you it is. It is, because then yeah. I, I went, cause then, did I replay the level? Absolutely I did, because am I going to get the platinum in the stupid game? Well, unless there's a bug like there was in the Harry Potter season one through four, which didn't <laughs> let me get the platinum. Um, yeah, I'm going to. So anyway, so sort of playing that. It's fun. It's dumb. It's more Lego stuff. They did do a few things to improve upon it, so much so that I am interested in their entire collection that they're releasing this year, because they're doing like a one through nine collection this year. Uh, and I am interested to see what that is because apparently they are remaking all the early games. Like it's not just like upgrades to those. Like they are remaking all of the previous Star Wars games. I would assume Force Awakens will be the same one, um, but then also making them for eight and nine. So yeah. interested in that. Probably won't get it day one, but when it goes on super cheap sale, like Lego games always do, um, I will pick that up. Also was committed to trying to, you know, based off the goals that you had said for 2020 <laughs> and video gaming, I am trying to play my Switch more. Have started Luigi's Mansion 3. This game is absolutely adorable. It is so charming and so fun and so cool. And Luigi just makes me laugh. He is scared of absolutely everything, which you would think, you know, at some point you'd be scared of being, you'd be sick of being scared. Yeah. Not Luigi. 
He is scared all the time <laughs> of all the, of all the things. Uh, but it's great. You know, Nintendo always does an excellent job of putting a lot of charm into their games, of really p- creating a sense of place really well. And they do that fantastically with this game. I have no idea how long it is. I don't know, you know how much time it'll take me to finish it, but I am enjoying my time with it. Uh, and it's something that I, you know, pick up and play for 15, 20 minutes every day um, since I started playing it in the late December. Um, so really enjoying my time there. And then finally, the only other thing um, is I had talked about Children of Morta on our Game of the Year uh, podcast. Mm. I have finished the game. I have the Platinum in the game. It is spectacular. They released recently a roadmap for... The expansions, the DLC, like all the stuff they're going to do for it, and I'm really excited for those. Um, again, I don't know. There's a lot of really good indies this year. I totally recognize that. I don't know why this game isn't getting more buzz. I know you've played it a little bit. I'm guessing yeah. you're not as taken with it as I am. No, I actually really um, surprisingly found myself... Well, I told you, I, I like paused it and like went out of the house and ran errands for eight hours and left it paused because I wanted to continue the level I was on, even though I wasn't doing very I was playing poorly, I found it to be mm-hmm. a little difficult, especially like the lack of healing. Um, yeah. Yep. So what I thought would be frustrating really reminded me more of the charm of dead cells for me. Yeah. So yeah. I I did enjoy it and it's definitely something I want to visit, but the, here's my problem is I don't often turn my PlayStation on. And that will change for a little bit with Horizon Zero Dawn, but like I literally use my Xbox for everything. So like if I sit, if I'm sitting, and I find myself with thirty minutes to kill, right, it's a game on my Xbox because I'm already on the Xbox. So right, uh, if Children of if if I was watching stuff on my PlayStation, Children of Mortar would be an easy pick this up for thirty minutes and play, mm-hmm. um, and then put or or maybe not put it back down because. You also can't just play for 30 minutes. Sometimes it's a little bit longer than that. Yeah. No, I hear you. So, yeah, great game, though. Really loved it. Looking forward to what they do with it in the future. And dear listener, I encourage you, if you have, you know, it is on everything, literally everything, I think, at this point. Um, pick it up. If you have a Switch, is a, I think that's a great platform for it. Uh, if you care about achievements and trophies, the list is very doable um, on Xbox and PlayStation. So definitely encourage you to get it. Um yeah, I love the game. I think it's awesome. So that's kind of a list of all the things I've been playing. Josh, let's move on. Let's get to our topic of the show. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about reviews. And I know we've talked about reviews in the past, uh-huh. but <laughs> one of the biggest, one of the bigger uh, players in the world decided to make some changes. So no matter your feelings about IGN, their influence on g- the game review industry really is undeniable. And they recently announced a revision to the review scoring scale for all the reviews they do. So not just games, but movies, TV, comics, everything. They've gone away from the 100-point system that they used to have, and they're replacing it with a 10-point system. So no more 7.5s, 7.7s, 7.9s. A game gets a 7 or a game gets an Mm 8. That is it. There's no more 7.5s. While there's a lot of discussion about reviews, if they should be numbered or if they even matter, there's really currently no way to get away from them, right? You see advertisements for games highlighting the amazing reviews they've gotten. Uh, you know, they have some games, uh, developers have their Metacritic score of their games influence their bonuses and things like that. So with that, Josh, it's time. We are going to create the perfect scale to review both board games and video games. That could be numeric. It could be a word thing. 
It can be whatever we want it to be, but we're going to come up with the perfect scale to do this. Sound like a plan? Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure we're going to succeed in doing that. It's going to be awesome. Okay, so what we're going to do <laughs> is we're going to start with, we'll talk about IGN's new scale. Yeah. So it's a scale of 1 to 10, like I said. 10 being a masterpiece, obviously not perfect, mm. a masterpiece. 9 is amazing. 8 is great. 7 is good. 6 is okay. 5 is mediocre. 4 is bad. 3 is awful. 2 is painful. And 1 is unbearable. So... That is IGN's scale now. Mm. Do you think that is the perfect scale for scoring <laughs> games? I don't know. Three awful? Like, I get it. Three is low, and that's a 10-point scale. It's definitely... It's... <laughs> it is what it is. It's... I don't think it's perfect, no. Um, but I'm torn because I've always had this... So I've worked retail, not anymore, thank God, but so much of my life. I guess if you ever think of a performance review score, what we were, and and I don't even necessarily agree with this, but we were always told as management, Mm -hmm. never give a five. Five means there's no room for improvement. They're doing Mm -hmm. everything perfectly. If you give someone a five, they should have your job. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but which but, depending on the definition of the scale <laughs> like it right. could mean that so here's i don't know so what what do i think about this scale i think 10 should be flawless one should be unplayable that's what i think is the difference so do you think it have. would ever be possible and this actually is a good segue do you think it's possible then could it should a game ever receive a perfect score I think it's possible for a game to get a perfect score, but I really feel like if if you want someone to shoot for a 10 and feel good about getting a 10, it shouldn't mm-hmm. be very easy to get a 10. There right. should be one game that has gotten a 10, not okay. not uh, five games in a calendar year. Like okay. <laughs> I think that's the difference for me, in my brain at least, is that Tens shouldn't be as common as they are. And I'm not saying that a game isn't a 10. I'm just saying, because like maybe we have a calendar year where 10 games are perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also depends on what they decide to measure in a game. Are they including audio? Are they right. including controls? Like, how deep are they getting? Like, what what is this that they... And I know, I know they list it. Um, well, I know one of the links that you gave me but it might have been a different site list, like mm-hmm. the things that they look for. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, if you give a game a one, you're really beating the crap out of that game and that developer and that studio. It really should be for a reason as well. Like right. if you're going to dig someone a hole and you're going to throw them in it, you might as well have a good reason for doing that. Right. So uh, I think my big concern with – and I, I, I know the counter argument to this, so I'll talk about it in a second. My big concern when I look at a scale like this, and I think, you know, we'll talk about GameSpot and Game Informer and all those other ones as well. And when we're talking about this, I am talking about it in the context of board games as well. The problem is there isn't a board game site like IGN, GameSpot, right. or Game Informer. Like, there there are people who in, who review board games and give them scores, 
but there's no major player, right? right? There's like the dice tower is like, oh, we approve, like we think this game is good. You know, there are small sites that say, oh, we give this a four and a half out of five stars, but there's no. It's mostly users that are giving it right. scores. Yeah, exactly. It is much more user focused. So when I think about this, so like five mediocre, four bad, three awful, two painful, one unbearable. What's the difference? Yeah, that's also a good question. You know, and one could argue, okay, well, you're basically making it a five point scale then, right? Because anything six or lower, all is just bad. Right. So you're really making it a five point scale then of 10 through six because anything. Do you think a five point scale? Do you, I should, let me back up. Do you like more ways to rake games or fewer? I think it gets a little muddy when you give too many options, especially Mm -hmm. for game and board game reviews. It was funny because I read, I read the notes. While we were at lunch, and my wife was like, "What? What? What's that face for?" And I was like, "Well, I just read what we're doing, and it's." And she's like, "What?" And I was like, "Oh, we're just going to create the perfect scale to review board games and video games. <laughs> <laughs> no problem." <laughs> she's like, "Ah." Oh. Um, when I when I looked through the links, so like we're going to talk about Game Informer, GameSpot, and Eurogamer, and and uh, and I don't remember which one had the five point scale. I really think the five point scale is the best scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but but giving you the point fives in there, I, I don't know. Like, it's still technically a ten point scale if you look at it that way. But I think it's mm-hmm. more um, in depth, at least on the face. It looks more in depth than like what is a three point five compared to on a on a scale of five compared to a five on a scale of ten. Like, what's What's the differences between the two of those? Are they even close? Who's like, can you compare a 3.5 out of 5 and a 5 out of 10? Like, I feel like it gives you more room to be constructive with your criticism about a game. Right. So uh, all these, I think, GameSpot, Game Informer, and IGN all use 10-point scales. Eurogamer uses like a recommend, not recommend yeah, system. Yeah. But I, what I think is super interesting about this, and I get this is so nerdy. So, you know, GameSpot's 10 says they think the game is essential, right? They're not saying that it is a perfect game, but they're saying it is an essential game for people to play. Yeah. Perfect. Game Informer's 10 means the game is outstanding. Okay? Which is similar, yeah. Yep. And then IGN's is Masterpiece, Which right? Which is a little bit higher, yeah. <laughs> okay. Nine for GameSpot is superb. Hmm. Game Informer's 9 is superb. Okay. IGN's is amazing. Which is the same. It's just different ad- adjectives. Okay. Now, 8 <laughs> eight for GameSpot is great. Game Informer is very good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and IGN is great. Okay? Yeah. Here's where things get interesting. 7 for GameSpot is good. For Game Informer is average. Uh, <laughs> Okay. And for IGN is good. That could explain why Game Informer gives so many games a seven or higher in their review scores. <laughs> and then the last one I'll do for six, GameSpot is fair. Game Informer is limited appeal. And IGN is okay. So, yeah, you know, and here's, here's what's really interesting is there is research out there. There's been science done. About when you're creating a Likert, a Likert scale, which this is, you know, you have a one through 10, you can only pick, you know, individual numbers between them. You can't pick in between. There are, there has been research done that shows like what is, if you say something is good, 
what would be one standard deviation better than that? Like, what is the word that is one standard deviation better? And what is the word that is one standard deviation worse? Like, there are, <laughs> there's research done that shows, like, what those words are yeah. for the average person. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, they're all not following that because the words aren't the same. But, like, that stuff exists out there. And I wonder, you know, who – what is the thought process in coming up with amazing versus – you know, superb. Like, who decided, like, no, we're going to use superb versus we're going to use amazing? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is it one person developing the scale for a company or is it a group of people at a table who are just agreeing on mm-hmm. on something because your six and my six, totally different. Right. And, and <laughs> for me, I still think a six is an average game. Right. And I, I tend to fo- I tend to even think of five can te- can technically be an average game on a scale of ten, right? That's a three point five ish, three point two five. So uh, we this has been we t- we've had conversations about this in the PSVG Discord about like people thinking sixes are like everyone has their opinion on a six and ga- some games sh- like shouldn't be getting this. Or or a six is bad. Don't play it if it's a six. I won't buy a game unless it's higher than a seven. I like I get that, but you there's so many variables going into a review score. Never mm-hmm. even mind the number because right. you have to like something that I think it was Eurogamer. They were like, we're going to do our best to put a person who is experienced in that genre of game to review it. Right. That is very important. Yeah. Because. If someone is and it's, but it's also very important to know that as a consumer, because if I went to read a Outer Worlds review, not being a fan of Fallout, right. as I was, and someone who has only played Fallout games and only reviewed Fallout games, they're going to be like, whatever their score is, an eight out of ten or a five out of ten, but they're going to be like, I was expecting Fallout, or this is just like Fallout, like. You're all you're you're subjected to that as well. So, uh, it's almost like I don't want a number system, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's still important the way much- that people re- look at reviews to have a number, just so it's easier for people to relate to. Right. How much do you think the American school system plays into this? That oh. you know, seventy percent <laughs> is a C. Yeah, yeah. And that's quote unquote average work. You know, is what it's supposed to be. Sure. Do you do you think that is what influences people to be like, oh, if it's below a seven, it's bad? Is that why Game Informer scale so seven <laughs> is average? Maybe, but I'm like, hey, a C plus, all right, I'm doing great. <laughs> so I'll take it. <laughs> you're telling me this game we got a six out of ten? That's a D. You're you're passing, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I think it definitely has something to do with it because I def I definitely look at. Um, at least I look at 10 point scales on like a grading system. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like five point scales are a little bit different, but you know, with the point fives, it's a little easier to like figure it out. Right. And you know, and I, I didn't want to bring this topic up because I think that any of these sites are doing a bad job. Obviously they're far more knowledgeable than I am about the best way to be, to do reviews. I'm sure they all have 
knowledge about criticism and have read about criticism more than I have and about the best way to critique and review things. But yeah. I, I, I do think it's an interesting conversation to have about because for better or for worse, you know, these are the things that stoke, you know, how like is really you have to love or hate things these days. Right. Like there's no in between. I anymore. wish it, it wasn't that like, way. But yeah. Yeah. But it seems that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like all the Internet traffic, all of the conversations online tend to be about loving or hating things, yeah. not about things being fine or good or that was a, a good experience, you know, and. Do you think score, and I think you kind of answered this, do you think though that having a score is essential, that games, board games, video games, movies, comic books, there should be a score they are given? I think, yeah, yes. Um, but I can also very easily see a world without it. I just think uh, it's something you have to ease people into, just like this whole thing with like, not that it's comparable. Um but games going to all digital, like it's something right. you need to ease people into and mm-hmm. what people are comfortable with is a score. And when someone says you saw a movie, what would you give it out of five stars out of 10, mm-hmm. whatever? Like that's like that. Those are common questions um, until we get to the point where someone's like, well, did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. Okay, great. Would you, do you think I would like it? Yeah, I think so. Well, why? Well, because of this, that's a whole different conversation. That's more than a, how many stars did you give it? Uh, but right now, like I still rate movies on a five star scale, and mm-hmm. uh, but I'm but I'm hesitant to give a video game a number score. So I don't know what the disconnect is for me, or maybe right. I'm maybe I've just moved on number scores for games. But uh, I think that in general. People still look for it, and it's also a power move for people who want to have their voice heard, and we see that right. with Metacritic. Do you – and I mean, heck, we do huge shows every fall and spring about Metacritic. Like, yeah. we're obviously as guilty about this as anyone. Do you – when there's a game you're interested in, do you – do review scores impact your decision to buy games at all? How do, how do you use review scores? Uh, they still impact me, just not as much. Um, obviously, with things like Twitch and Mixer, um, I have other ways to judge a game. Mm-hmm. Um, but for games I, I would buy before they release, I, I really think review scores like stop me from buying Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Right. That might be the first game in a while that a review score has really stopped me from buying a game. Um, so yeah, I still pay attention to them. And I think that if... The problems we have is like if you look at a game like Death Stranding where the numbers are all over the place, right? That's where review scores are not very helpful to me, and I can't imagine anyone else. Um, but a game like Ghost Recon where everyone's giving it a five or mm-hmm. a two uh, out of five, like that's a little bit easier to to assess the quality of the game. So, what do you do then for board games since they don't get those kind of reviews? Right? Board games like- is, is another animal. Uh, I don't. I look at a board game. I'll watch like a Dice Tower um, review. Because so the thing with board games, because there aren't as many reviewer options, it's easier for me to align my likes and dislikes with a certain person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know that if that person liked this game, there's a higher chance of me liking it. Doesn't mean I'm going to like it, right? Um, but if I like watch Dice Tower and I see Tom or Z 
talk about a game they like, I know I like a lot of games that they enjoy. Mm-hmm. But if I saw like Sam review a game, um, but it still looked interesting to me, I know that we have very opposite tastes in games. Right. Uh, so if he liked it, I might just not be interested, period. Or I might like it, just I'd have to do more research into it. So it's it's definitely more difficult with board games. And I don't check Board Game Geek as often as I should. Um, I, honestly, a lot of my board game purchases are based on how they look before how they play, which is weird nowadays. Well, you know, they, the whole don't buy judge a book by its cover, but yeah. they... You know, book companies spend a lot of money getting cover <laughs> art for books just yeah. the way they want it to, you know, and I think the same is true for board games. I think what's really interesting about board games, and I was, I was trying to draw a parallel to video games, and I don't know if it works, and I don't know, and but maybe it does, so I would love your input on it. When I think of board games, right, I think of like, you know, I talked about A Feast for Odin tonight, um, and Uwe Rosenberg, yeah, and that I like A Feast for Odin, I like Caverna, I like Agricola. So if Uwe Rosenberg designs a game, there's a high chance that I'm probably going to at least like it, if not love it. Yeah. Where Do you think that whole who the designer is mentality, you know, obviously you have the Kojimas and things like that in video games. Do you think that holds true in both places? Do you think like in board games we can more reliably desi- rely on designers because they produce more games compared to how many games we get from video game producers like how do you what are your thoughts and feelings on that yeah it's interesting i just think the volume of video games it does make it hard to follow specific game designers obviously Mm -hmm. kojima found that like following um and like tim schaefer and jaffe Mm -hmm. and and um there's a lot of people out there that are doing like like, and and amy henning and stuff like that but it's different in the board game world because you specifically front and center look at a designer's name. Uh, and and yes, in video games, they the the games genuinely generally aren't the same. Like I know if I get an Emerson game, there's definitely going to be similar mechanisms or play styles mm-hmm. to them, and that's not always the same in video games. Um, or like, I mean, you you use Rosenberg, like, yeah, you know what you're getting when you get, to a certain extent, when you get a, a Rosenberg game. Um, so yeah, maybe in the board game world, they're more Rockstar-ish quality than they are in video game world, uh, with the exception of maybe Kojima. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is a weird thing. And uh, I know, like Antoine Bowser, like my friend, he'll buy any game that he makes without playing it. Even right. if he never heard of it, he bought the Attack on Titan two game, and he's mm-hmm. never seen Attack on Titan. Right, <laughs> but he's yeah, like, it's a yeah. Bowser game, so I have to get it. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. And he's like, it's actually really good. It's very similar to his other games. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's how those <laughs> board work. games work. <laughs> yeah, or like Stefan Felder, you know. I, and I think that's what's true. Because, but I think what was interesting though, when you started naming people from video games, right? Like you talked about, you know, Amy Hennig. What was the last game she shipped? Uncharted three? Uh yeah, you're right. I just I I think I guess I more associate them with projects than games specifically. Right. That they've created. Like, I, yeah, because like I think Hennig I, she might have done writing on like one of the games when she got to EA for a, a different game, but like I think 
what Uncharted three in like 2011 was like the last real game she shipped. Yeah, you know Jaffe. What I mean, he had drawn to death, but that thing right. crashed and burned. <laughs> twisted metal. And black. prior to that was like <laughs> twisted metal in like 2012. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and that's what I think is so interesting. We have these people in the video game industry, and then we're obviously diverting a little bit from reviews here, but we have these people in the video game industry that we follow and we know and we know who what their names are. But man, some of these people haven't shipped games in close to a decade now. That's true. Yeah, you're so, right. It's definitely more prevalent in board gaming. Okay, uh, so here, yeah. so here's what we need to do now, Josh. <laughs> if you were the founder of PSVG, yeah, or whatever we want to call it, Happy make, rich. Make, <laughs> that's that's why Donnie's so rich. It's because of PSVG. Okay, let's say that you started um, IGN. You were the person in charge of IGN. Yeah. Um, and IGN was now going to start doing board games. And you had to create a scale for rating board games, video games, everything that they do. Yeah. What scale are you creating? What do you think is going to be the best thing for you to be able to critically review something, but also for your readers to be able to understand what you mean? Are you using a 10 point, a five point? Are you using words slash recommendations? Like, what are you going to do? I think for me, like, I don't have a problem with the 10 point scale. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like it's too broad for me. I would prefer a five point scale just, just because it's what I'm familiar with. And that's how I are. I've already been rating movies on a five point scale my whole life. Right. Um, when, when video games were young, it was still a five point scale. So I'm comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a, a bigger impact. Like you pointed it out, like what's the difference between a seven, eight, and nine, and a ten? If they're all going to be just different adjectives, well, maybe not a ten. For like these games, like there's there's a little for me, it just feels like there's a little bit more of, of a weight between a four and a four point five, mm-hmm. or a three point five and a four point five. Then there so would be a-, a seven and a nine. So when you say a five point scale, are you saying with half numbers? Yeah, or are you I mean, saying, it's still okay. a ten point scale technically, but like, right? Um, I like I like I just feel like a four point five feels to me much different than a seven and eight, or an eight or a nine. Okay, um, and I don't know, I can't necessarily explain why that is, mm-hmm. um, but I think really what it does is it eliminates that weird six and seven judgmental review i still think on a scale on a five scale a three is still a decent game Mm -hmm. it's not bad but you put a six in front of someone's face and all of a sudden it's the worst thing they ever saw i'm not gonna buy that game it's a six right so and i mean that's that's just how i see it i think i feel like it gives you a little bit um less room to be vague about a review if that makes sense do you think that any of that is because you know when you look at the movie world yeah and you look at especially summer blockbusters the movies that quote unquote most people see yeah that a lot of those are threes yeah yeah whereas in video games the games that a lot of people play are nines yeah because you know what i'm saying yeah i do know what you're saying um you can I I still feel like so that and that like example if we're doing like a like a 6 in a video game out of a 10 scale like 
I think that's you can still enjoy that game maybe like a summer blockbuster like you're using that as an example like mm-hmm. there there's still <laughs> sixes can be good in the way that some people might have liked Wild Wild West in July of <laughs> 2004 or whatever right. year it came out in um yeah and and some and for other people you know they're not into that, and that's fine. Right. They're more into the critically acclaimed stuff. Maybe it's a movie snob scale. Maybe it's like I prefer Citizen Kane to Wild Wild West. Well, right. I liked Independence Day more than Casablanca, so take that. Right. I do wonder as video games mature and become older, if the critic base will become more of similar to what you see in books and in film and in those art mediums that have been ar- around longer. Where the boutique smaller thing is the thing that gets the nine and the ten and right. wins the awards, and the mass appeal thing is does not score as high. Because if you look at you know Call of Duty, Madden, FIFA, those games tend to still score pretty well. Like it's not like those yeah. games are getting fives and sixes. Yeah, you know. So um, I think if I was going to create a system, <laughs> my system would be really boring and people would not like it, and it would be recommended or not recommended. There's and nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And it would not just say that. It'd be like recommended for if you yeah. like XYZ, you know, and that would be it. Like, I think that's like what my system would be because I, and this is going to probably so- sound snobbish. I think there is so much lost in just looking at a number. And I feel like that's what so many people do. Right. And when you look at the fanboy wars and all the stupid console war stuff that people get up in arms about it's well you know nintendo and playstation have all these exclusives that have scores in the mid upper 90s you know what does xbox have you know and and if we just got rid of that like games were recommended or they weren't it was you know boom like you can just decide whether you want to play this thing we think you'd like it if you like these other games or if you like this style of game or you ha- like these experiences or hey we can't recommend this like you might like it if you like these things but because of technical issues and whatever we just can't recommend this game right you know i i just uh, i don't know i i feel like we lose so much when we just go to numbers and i understand i'm you know we do metafall and meta spring like numbers are fun when i when I know when a game embargo review embargo is up, I go look and see how it's scoring to get an idea of how people are feeling about it. Like, I think there's a value there, but I feel like the value that that added or does add has gotten to the point where it's almost more of a detriment now than it used to be. Yeah. You want the Netflix system. Yeah. Like thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. You can still not recommend something and also not say it's bad. Like that's something that you can be, you can do. And I think it's more, um, uh, fa- it's fair, more fair to the to your audience by saying, mm-hmm. "I didn't like this, but you might like this, right? If you like these games, right?" And I think part of the thing that I struggle with too, and I think it hasn't happened much yet, but I do wonder about you know how is a one person development studio supposed to be scored on a the same scale? As a, you know, $250 million budget game. Yeah. And, you know, it does. And I think there, you know, as someone who really enjoys food and you think about the culinary world, you know, should a mom and pop restaurant be judged by a critic as the same way, the same way they would judge a restaurant that is $250 minimum a person? Right. 
part of me says yes, because the food can still be really good either way, right? Like you don't necessarily need to have, you know, years of culinary training and be, have, you know, refined technique that you learned in France and when you were, you know, staunching for whatever fancy place, but it also feels like it's almost setting up for an unfair situation, right? Like the person, the critic who goes into a really fancy restaurant probably has certain expectations that the mom and pop place either can't meet or doesn't care to meet. They're trying to do something different. They're not trying to necessarily play in that same field. So should they be judged by the same field? And that's what I think going, get doing like a recommended makes it so all of those things are the same, right? Like, hey, yeah, this place is great. We recommend it if you're looking for really good food and affordable price for you in an awesome environment. Or yes, this place is recommended because if you're looking for an upscale, you know, high class situation um, that you can celebrate a special occasion. Like that scale works for everything. And I, and I think it takes into account the strengths of what every situation or every different thing brings. So final Amen. question for you before we move to wrapping things up, Josh. Hmm. What do you think it would take or what do you think we'll ever have a board game website equivalent to GameSpot, IGN, Game Informer, Eurogamer, anything like that? Because Board Game Geek isn't, right? It is user reviews. Yes, oh, yeah, there it's are on links. <laughs> yeah, yes, there are links to reviews from quote unquote professional game reviewers, but yeah. there is no, I mean, there's really no Metacritic, there's really no Open Critic. There are Reddit threads where people on Reddit will go through and compile people's reviews for the years to say, like, hey, based off of these 30 reviewers and board games, here are the top 10 games of the year, but there is real no like IGN for board games. Do you think that will ever happen? I mean, we're on the right track. Like, you can't open up a magazine now without s- someone you didn't expect having board game reviews or board game topics. So I think it's, mm-hmm. like, on the way. Um, I don't know who would take that step to get it going, but uh, it's definitely something that we I could see happening in the next couple of years, for sure. Then here's the next question. Do you think that should happen slash do you want that to happen? Do you think that's a good thing? Mm, the selfish part of me doesn't want it to happen, mm-hmm. uh, but more exposure is better for board games. So yeah, I would, lo- I would love to see it happen uh, just so we get, get it into the more into the popular culture. Um, yeah. I mean, board games are for everyone. So uh, yeah, there should be more access to them. Yeah. I, I do wish, you know, like some of the sites, especially, IGN with Matt Miller, or not IGN, Game Informer with Matt Miller and stuff, you, you see, are starting to see more and more and more tabletop articles at these places. Uh, obviously, Adam is doing it with game reviews and things like that. So, you know, I, I think it's coming. I don't know if we're ever going to get a, to a full-blown situation where those places are reviewing games on the same scales as their video games, but I think it would be interesting if that started to happen um, and how broad, like how many games they started to review um, or if it was just like the big hitters that like started to push out into the mass, you know, your wingspans and things like that, that are getting like a ton of attention. So, all right. Well, that was a fun conversation. I don't know that we came to creating the perfect scale, <laughs> but I think we both have a good idea of what we'd want to see if we mm. created a scale. And that's the important thing. So, dear listener, if you have ideas about what you'd like a review scale to be, or should there be review scales, let us know. We'd love to talk about it. 
Josh. Hi. I think I think it's time we probably think about wrapping up. What do you say? I think we should do a well-rounded life first. That sounds great to me, sir. Obviously, we are a gaming podcast, uh, but we do want to leave you with one recommendation, suggestion, or thing we are currently into that's helping us live a well-rounded life. Josh, what is your recommendation for our dear listeners? Mine is a movie that I have slept on for a while. Uh, in fact, part of my I was inspired by Lucas of PSVG Prime in Flux to Post. Watched an astounding amount of movies last year uh, to get better at watching movies, which I used to love to do. So uh, my goal for this year was just to watch more movies. And that's what I started doing. Uh, you know, taking some time away from sleeping, perhaps, or game playing. Um, but I got, I have HBO now or go or on demand, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I got a notification or, or yeah, uh, on my phone saying like, these movies are leaving this month. And one of the movies that I had been wanting to watch and just hadn't pulled the trigger on was, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. Uh, which is something that when the trailer came out for theaters, it looked really interesting. I really wanted to mm-hmm. see it, but I don't get to go to the theaters anymore. <laughs> so I never, I never caught it. So like, that's a good time to, to, uh, watch it before it goes away, at least on HBO. So, uh, I didn't really know what to expect from this movie. Uh, I can tell you it has John Hamm and Jeff Bridges and, uh, Dakota Johnson and Chris Hemsworth, among others, in this movie. So that's a good cast. Um, and I don't know how to, I don't want to describe it by spoiling it because I'm sure people haven't seen this movie. It kind of flew, I believe, under the radar of a lot of people. Um, but it's very Tarantino esque as far as the way it's shot. If you've ever seen the movie Four Rooms, it definitely has some. Uh, uh, similarities with that but it's essentially um the el royale is a hotel that is on the california nevada line and it's very much a product of its generation they don't really update it it definitely um uh is in the i want to say 50s or 60s as far as the era that it was built but it's uh very interesting place where uh, maybe the best people uh, don't go to and maybe some nice people wouldn't want to be there. Uh, and, and essentially the movie is just some people uh, that are all interesting characters, a la like Clue or Murder on the Orient Express, um, kind of meet each other, talk, go on their separate ways, and then things start to get interesting. I would also compare it to Identity, if you saw that movie with John Cusack uh, way back when. And then uh, something happens in the middle of the movie that shakes the whole thing up. Uh, maybe not later than maybe the last, the third act. Um, that really is unexpected and uh, interesting. So the, the, what I would say about this movie is every character is interesting. And it truly is, at least the way I gave it a four out of five, speaking of reviews, um, but the way I worded it is it, just if you take the story out, which is still a very good story, it's like an acting masterclass by, like, I don't know that I've seen Jeff Bridges act 
this good in a film before. He probably has. Uh, I'm just looking at it as a current uh, watch, but like his acting was incredible. Um, Every actor stood on their own two feet. Like you really, they, they carried their own story. You really like were invested in what they were doing and why they were there. Um, It's just, it was just an excellent film. Uh, It's, and it's a, it's a very high recommendation from me, Uh, but it is a little, violent if you're uh anti-violence uh maybe i mean i did say it's tarantino-esque so uh less feet uh equal amounts of violence (laughs) okay uh and it's interesting too because drew goddard is a really i mean he's done a lot of really good stuff yeah i actually looked him up to see who he was like who the director was because it was very it was so Tarantino-esque. I was like, maybe he was a producer on this because it really feels like he could have done this. Yeah, but I mean, because he, he wrote for, you know, Buffy and Angel and Alias and he wrote and directed, I think, Cloverfield. No, wrote Cloverfield, directed Cloverfield. I can't remember. Uh, oh, no, he directed Cabin in the Woods. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, he just has done a lot of really interesting things. He did a lot of writing on um the daredevil on netflix the daredevil i was like the daredevil on the, the daredevil daredevil, series yeah. <laughs> on netflix uh he's directed the good play episodes of the good place like drew goddard's done a lot of really cool things he's a i think a very interesting talent in hollywood and, and i am always down to see what he is doing for sure um so that's a great recommendation i i wholeheartedly agree with that recommendation nice um my recommendation is a little bit different um <laughs> it's also a film um, the partner and I, we decided for her birthday, she, we were going to go to the movies and we decided we, that we were going to go see the biggest, best movie released in December. Uh, we went and saw Little Women. <laughs> and let me tell you, Josh, it is an absolutely delightful movie. It is so good. Uh, another, obviously, if we want to talk about talents in Hollywood, Greta Gerwig, my goodness, is she an exceptional writer and director? Yeah, she really First, is. Oh, her stuff is so good. And the acting in this movie is top-notch. The casting was spectacular. Everyone just crushes their roles in this movie. The writing is amazing. The directing is top-notch. This movie is an easy, easy recommendation. I loved it. And I think it was funny because some people, I think, were giving me a little crap for going to this movie, being like, (laughs) oh, you went and saw Little Women. Um, And I'm going to go see Star Wars eventually. But I am very happy that this was the movie I went and saw. I had a delightful time with it. Um, and if you enjoy dramas, especially if you enjoy period dramas that are well acted and well crafted, um, Little Women, super easy recommendation. Um, just an exceptionally put together movie. Uh, Josh, what do you say we wrap this show up? Let's do it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. In addition to finding us on Twitter and Instagram at Board with Fiji, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bored with fiji as well so feel free to give us a five-star rating over there please and thank you also if you want to communicate in the more long form or you're just not feeling social media please feel free to send us an email at the lonely inbox of bored with vg at gmail.com we tag all our stuff with hashtag bored with vg so please feel free to use that hashtag as well on all your social media and whatever podcast service you're listening to us on we encourage you to give us a stellar rating. That is, whether you're downloading us from the PSVG feed, the Dice Tower Network feed, or our very own standalone 
bored with video games feed. You can find me on Xbox Live and PlayStation Network way more often than on Google Stadia at Why So Serious. That's S I R R I U S. Kyle, where can people find you? So you can find me on all of the usual places Twitter, Instagram, PlayStation Network, Xbox Live. Board Game Geek, all at Psychocross, C-Y-C-O-C-R-O-S-S. Just be aware, very soon in the next two weeks, probably, we are going to be doing our Meta Spring contest, speaking of game reviews. Uh, <laughs> so be on the lookout for that. That'll be heading up right around the corner here. Um, as always, though, if you do have suggestions for future topics, be sure to reach out to us on the social media, because we want to talk about what you want to hear about. And remember, everyone, whether it be board games or video games, never stop gaming. Stop gaming.